When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Politics on the Couch, the podcast that sets out to explore the way our minds respond to politics and, as regular listeners will know, sometimes gets a bit distracted on the journey. Well, at least that's the way my mind responds to politics. Uh, I'm Raphael Baer, by the way, and we're back for a new season, as promised in my solo bonus episode over the summer. Uh, And also, as promised, I have a guest, and not just any guest, I'm almost improperly excited uh, to welcome Tim Harford to the Politics on the Couch consulting room. Tim is an economist, a broadcaster, a columnist, uh, an author. He hosts the BBC Radio 4 programme, More or Less, uh, which makes sense of statistics for people like me, whose affection for numbers is not always matched by a capability with them. Uh, I've been a fan of the show and of Tim's writing for years. Uh, And that appreciation has really rocketed this year because of the work he and his team have been doing during the pandemic, uh, when data and statistics have been really at the forefront of the story. But I particularly wanted to talk to him because his new book, which is called How to Make the World Add Up, really branches out into the stuff we talk about on this podcast. Uh, It has a lot of psychology in it, a lot of insight into the challenges involved in being a, the flaky homo sapiens with a fallible mind confronting a complex world uh, where there are all sorts of numbers that seem to be telling all sorts of stories. Uh, and it isn't always clear what they're saying to us. Um, but we'll come to that in a second. That seemed like a very long intro, uh, Phil, uh, over in the recording hub. Are you still with me? I'm here and I'm hearing you loud and clear. So it's been a very busy week for me. Daughter back to school, finally. So I haven't really been paying attention to what's been going on in the world of politics. Have I missed anything? Has there been anything interesting happening? Well, by the time this goes out, it will be next week or this week. And last week will be the week I'm about to talk about. But yes, it was crazy in in an interesting... But I was about to say nostalgic. I mean, it was this kind of weird sense of deja vu just because the Brexit thing uh, kicked off in a way 
that although we had sort of foreseen that just because of the, the deadline for, for doing a deal and we knew that there was going to be an autumn of a, sort of a recrudescence of Brexit politics, something about all the dynamics and the way all the arguments and some of the familiar voices came out arguing different sides of the position. Uh, the, the key point being this this bill that the government published essentially saying you know, they're going to repudiate aspects of the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson doesn't like. Either he didn't really understand them when he signed them or he always thought he could get away with, um, with, with, with somehow changing it, although it's international law. And so I found myself in doing two things that are, are all too familiar from 2019. One, which is frantically trying to understand the intersection of complicated legislation uh, and Brexit and domestic politics, where the, which are two spheres that don't actually necessarily talk to each other in the same language. You know, Brexit politics was always conducted often in domestic Brexit speak, which was all about sovereignty and the Conservative Party and satisfying some national appetite for greatness. And the law is the law and international agreements are technical and complicated. So there was that aspect of it. You're also trying to decrypt where Boris Johnson's head is, somewhere between thinking I'm actually the Prime Minister and I have some responsibilities to not completely set fire to the entire country uh, by having a very bad Brexit essentially a no-deal Brexit with a very thin safety net. Um, but also everything about his life and career and background so far has been propelling him uh, towards these, these sort of heroic displays. Um, and also the idea that if he believes enough in himself uh, and that good things will happen, they will happen. And that has sort of worked for him so far. I think one of the things that I found myself thinking in in the middle of, of last week as this was all going off is that it actually, for Boris Johnson and for, for the party, it, it resembles as much the behaviour of an addict um, as, as anything else. This sense that, that to begin with, they used, the uh, Tories used a lot of, you know, Eurosceptic rhetoric uh, really to achieve certain things. To, you know, I'm talking about you know, David Cameron as well to an extent and, and Boris Johnson because it, it, it achieved a certain political hit, you know, got them where they wanted to go. It, it helped fend off a threat from UKIP. It also animated their base. And, you know, right back when uh, David Cameron declared this sort of pseudo veto over an EU agreement in, in 2010, December 2010, I think it was, uh, and he had this poll spike. You could see them getting this rush, this buzz, like, well, when we when we take this Eurosceptic stuff and really run with it, you know, we, we, we get a... Uh, it, it really lifts us in the polls. Uh, and I just get this sense now that they've moved from the sort of behaviour of the sort of high-functioning addict to the complete kind of Zamo Maguire, Scarface, off-the-charts addict. And they're just now hoovering up this, you know, this idea of maximum sovereignty and, and, and uh, all, all the rhetoric and all the, the, the... everything that you can do to project this image of what Brexit is for domestic consumption... And they are now high on their own supply. They literally believe that that is, is, is the best outcome for the UK. And, and that means puts us way closer to a, a, a no deal, the most extreme possible Brexit than I think we've ever been before. I think it's now almost odds on that that's what's going to happen. The problem for Boris Johnson is if he very complacently thinks you can fold the economic impacts of the uncertainty and a really bad Brexit into 
uh, all the fallout from COVID, the theory being also you can then blame it on the Europeans and go, these awful spiteful foreigners, these continentals could have blockaded us and you mobilise some sort of Dunkirk spirit uh, to ride that out. Uh, that, that might be a bit optimistic when if it's cold and the NHS is under strain from normal cold and flu season and there's still COVID and Christmas has been cancelled because of social distancing and then you have a bad Brexit, you know, the fact that you could notionally blame some of that on on the French and the Germans, you know, it, it's still a sort of a cultural, social, economic hellscape and you're the incumbent government, so you're going to get some blame for that. And the other political calculation that Johnson has to make is, is whether he wants to just own a failure. There's no getting away from the fact that he promised Brexit was done and it will very conspicuously not have been done uh, to most people's satisfaction. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you know, the, the other dimension, which will, is certainly animating some people in government, is whether the strain on the union is such that he finds himself early next year having to go to the Queen and say, I seem to have accidentally ripped your crown into little pieces because uh, I've wound everyone else up so much with my bad Brexit that the union's in peril. He doesn't want to be that guy. So I believe him and the people around him when they say they want a deal. I just think they've they've pumped themselves so full of this kind of sovereignty hungry Brexit drug that they've lost a kind of a coherent strategic sense of how you would actually achieve that uh, on the terms that they think are the only terms acceptable. Right, uh, I can see that Tim Harford is knocking at the door, the virtual door, uh, that is, to our socially distanced podcasting software. And uh, in the excitement to answer the door, I appear to have knocked uh, an entire cup of coffee onto my notes uh, and towards my laptop. So I'm going to mop that up. Uh, Well, Phil, maybe you can hit the pause button on the recording and we will be back in a nanosecond with with Tim Harford. So, Tim, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, I've I've enjoyed the book, um, but you didn't write it just for me. Uh, Maybe you did. That would be a bit weird. Um, Maybe uh, I'm presuming you didn't. I'm I'm hoping for a wider audience, but uh, (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. So, so, so apart from satisfying me, what was your motivation exactly? So for, for more than 10 years, I've been presenting More or Less, which is a Radio 4 programme about trying to understand the world through numbers. And it seemed logical that I should write a book about numbers and statistics. And I never wanted to do it because there were so many good books out there and I didn't feel I had anything new to add. And what changed my mind was really the experience in the last few years of... Uh, trying to navigate very politically uh, contentious waters. The Brexit referendum is the most uh, obvious one, but there's climate change, there's Trump, there's lots of this stuff, where I realised actually people are not only interested in the facts, they're not only interested in the statistics, they're interested in uh, ideology, in their own identity, they're, they're being motivated by their emotions and their preconceptions. And if I want to write a book to help people think clearly about the world, which is what I really want to do, I've got to deal with that sort of thing just as much as I deal with the statistics. So the aim is that the book should help you understand the world by helping you understand statistics and also helping helping us understand ourselves. At the beginning, you say, you know, you had to sort of send the text in. It was April um, we're now in September and we've had a lot of uh, ups and downs and particularly obviously on the on, on the COVID, a lot of which has been driven by analysis of statistics and trying to understand modelling and data. And I was wondering, do, do you think 
trying to find some upside in this. Is this been a sort of a learning moment for everyone, for the country? Are we now more statistically literate as a nation than we were in February, do you think? A learning experience, the, the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate euphemism for just falling flat on your face. Yeah, um, you're, you're not wrong about the tone of the book. It is optimistic. Um, I am trying to get people to take statistics more seriously as a force for good rather than just a vector for bullshit uh, and it's really a, a book about how to not how to think about statistics it's a book about how to think how to think more clearly about the world and statistics are just a tool to do that but you're right that for all that the pandemic has been a global and a national trauma and an individual trauma for a lot of people it has at least demonstrated to us that there is more to data and more to statistics than just political communication and, and miscommunication. This stuff actually matters. It's very easy to fall into the trap, or I think it is a trap, of just viewing all of these statistical claims as political weapons. And the only thing you can do as a journalist is uh, fact-checking. And the virus has reminded us, I and mean, the virus doesn't care about, you know, lies on the side of a bus or any of that kind of stuff. The virus is immune to spin. The virus is just going to do what it does. And we need to try to understand it. Uh, and I think we're all realizing the hard way that, you know, this, this data about these exponential curves and uh, case fatality rates and case counts and all of this stuff is... Um, it's not, it's not some competition and it's not some political battle. This is the only way we have of, of trying to understand what's happening and, and hopefully of, of fighting back against uh, the virus. At the start of the process, I felt very optimistic about that in the sense that the, the sort of preceding period, the sort of 2016 to 19, a prevailing political narrative internationally had been uh, that we were in a kind of a post-truth era uh, and everything had become completely sort of swamped in, in relativism. And I thought actually suddenly graphs are on the front page and scientists are standing alongside the prime minister uh, and it was the, the sort of the revenge of 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 truth uh, and that was all going to cut through and then i became a little bit dispirited as as it became clear to me that actually some of the traditional partisan arguments really were just going to carry on and then and this process of people um or, or cobbling together their own version of what they think the truth is based on some interpretation that they, they can make of the facts. How just confident are you, do you think, that actually this we have, the, as you say, the virus is immune to spin, and one way or another, this is... I get a strong sense from the book of that you believe in that we are progressing in that direction, that this is... That there we are, this is progress. Is there progress in terms of our respect for evidence and respect for data? I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether we have progress in that respect there is there's a lot of progress in other respects um but and i just feel that I, I believe in the possibility of progress i think it's it's actually not that hard to for, for for any of us to think in a in a clear and critical way about the world and about the numbers that are presented you know it's not some incredibly esoteric or technical thing that we're being asked to do really all we need to do is show some curiosity, ask a few of the right questions, go one extra click, and we can all do it. It's not, it's not that hard. So that, that's where my optimism comes from, that I, 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 know, I know that we can do it, rather than my optimism comes from seeing that we are doing it. Because you're right, anything can be polarised, and even the virus has become uh, 
politically polarized. It's easy to overrate, to, to, to exaggerate the extent to which that has happened, but it clearly has happened somewhat. And since you're kind of in the business of, of, of kicking the tires on some of the claims that are made, uh, extrapolations drawn from this data or, or, you know, or, or promises, statements that are made uh, in the House of Commons, for example, about this stuff, does it feel on more or less that the whole programme has found itself slightly closer to a political front line than it might have been a few years ago? That, that you know, when, when you do find yourself quite often on the programme sort of yeah, very politely and kindly saying, well, actually, what this government minister has said or what the prime minister said just isn't actually true. Uh, and that is, by definition, a more political thing than a programme like More or Less was probably doing a few years ago. Well, actually, we, we fact-checked the Brexit referendum. We fact-checked every uh, election campaign since 2010 and actually probably before then, but I wasn't working on the programme uh, earlier so you know, I think we we would certainly identify when cabinet ministers have said things that aren't true, uh, when they've made promises that turned out, you know, not to have been kept, and indeed prominent other figures in political life and the media and so on. So we we have always done that. I think we've got more attention recently because the stakes seem higher. Um, it's it's something refreshing. I mean, in many ways, it's been really hard to report on coronavirus because it, I mean, there's there's so much suffering out there at the moment and also we're having to do it from under our duvets or at least we were for many months but one refreshing thing is the sense that people are really listening and they care whereas it, for example when we were fact-checking claims in the Brexit referendum you got the sense that people just wanted to hear what they wanted to hear and they were hoping more or less would produce evidence that they were on the right side of things um, and if if we contradicted what people wanted to hear then they'd ignore us or attack us and we don't get that nearly so much now people are taking it more seriously but we have always fact-checked um, the claims that senior politicians make I always want to move beyond the narrow fact-check I want to show people what is true as well as simply catching politicians out in lies fun as that might be and important as that might be there's there's more to life than that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't there? There is a, a subtle but important distinction, uh, and I know that it's the, it can be problematic for the BBC in many ways, but this the difference between balance, political balance, and the aspiration to truth, which, you know, if you have a, 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 an actual moonshot as opposed to a metaphorical moonshot and you have the NASA scientist on, you don't have to have the flat earther on to bring balance and say, you know, because... That that person, that it's sort of it's junk information what they would be bringing to it, uh, and I wonder if there's a, a sort of a tension there in what more or less does that you don't, you're not really aspiring to balance, uh, and no, no, we're not. We're we're aspiring to the truth, which is a different thing. Um, yeah, it's we have an we have an advantage in that um, pretty much anything we say we can point to the evidence, and uh, you know. We have more time as well. So the Today programme, for example, um, one of the things that makes their job difficult, there are many things that make the, the job of tape, the Today programme editor and producers and presenters difficult, but one of the things is it's all happening live. So if somebody lies on air, um, are you going to call them out on it? How, how do you know? The easiest way to catch them is to have someone from the other side uh, and to have this adversarial thing. So if we have two people arguing about something, that's a pretty safe way to make sure that, uh, you know, the truth at least has a chance of coming out. Um, 
But that also means a lot of noise and a lot of spin and a lot of confused listeners. Whereas with more or less, because we only go out weekly, we've got much more time to go, well, uh, Keir Starmer said this in the House of Commons two days ago. Was it true? And we can either say, yeah, it was true, or we can say, no, he's got it wrong. And, and there's no, we don't need to be balanced, just, so we just need to say, say what's what. Well, one of my favourite things, actually, a point that you make in the book, uh, which maybe appealed to me because I'm a, a weekly newspaper columnist, uh, and I've actually, it's, a, it's an issue that I've talked about on the podcast before. You make a, a very simple but excellent point about how what constitutes news changes very much depending on how often you look at the news because obviously if you if you're constantly checking your twitter every 30 seconds um you've you've sort of changed the currency of what amounts to being new and you use this uh i think very uh, effective model of the idea of a newspaper that's only published every 50 years or every 100 years you know that would say actually you know in today's news millions of people have been lifted out of poverty or in this decade's news there wasn't a nuclear war it's very difficult as a journalist to retain that perspective while also sort of getting out of bed in the morning and thinking I have to write a column uh, and accidentally inflate whatever happens to be landing in my time as the most significant event. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think the 50-year newspaper is a wonderful idea. And I can, I can say that because it's not my idea. It's, um, it's inspired by the work of a couple of sociologists, Galtung and Ruger, and really developed by a guy called Max Rosa, who's an economist um, in Oxford, who was the force behind the Our World in Data website, which is an absolutely great resource. But um, yeah, the, there is a certain bias in the frequency of the news. Um, bad things happen. There's a sense that, oh, the newspapers love bad news. I don't think that's quite true, but they love, they love news. And, and bad things tend to happen faster than good things. Good things tend to be a slow build. Um, I mean, we're, t- we're speaking on September the 11th, the, the anniversary, of course, of the of the 9-11 attacks. That week, I think I'm correct in saying more people died of uh, cigarette smoking related diseases than died in the um, the attacks on Washington and New York. Um, no newspaper would would report that. And if they were biased towards bad news, you'd go, oh, God, you, you think the 9-11 attacks were bad. Wait till I tell you how many people died of of smoking-related illnesses. Um, of course, they didn't say that. They they emphasised what was new. Um, but on a daily basis and, and on, a, on a weekly basis, what's new um, is often quite grim. And then we, we miss out on... There are quite a lot of good news stories out there, but they're not so newsy. There's another element there as well, isn't it, which is the, the, the shocking large event, something like 9-11, uh, instigates a, a need to identify responsibility guilt blame um first of all smoking you can only kind of blame yourself for smoking ultimately you could well you could blame the sort of nicotine industry as well but it's complicated uh, uh, but also i think this sense that the kind of emotional urgency of something triggers a whole different part you know, sort of psychological and brain response that that means that we're not necessarily responding to it we're not making a sort of a rational evaluation of risk or the probability of something happening and the the classic example also from 9-11 of this is that it, it has I think been quite plausibly said you might debunk this for me that uh the the death toll on the roads of people avoiding flying in the period after 9-11 because they were freaked out by the idea of getting on an aeroplane uh, at least compared to, if not outweighed, that of, of the 9-11 attack itself. There is, there is some pretty good evidence on that. I am not sure of the exact 
numbers. Uh, I seem to remember it wasn't, it, uh, the road traffic accidents were not worse than the original attack, but they were, like there was another thousand people is what I remember. Um, and that actually the, there are other examples of that. So the, um, the Hatfield crash killed, I think, four or five people and injured about another 60 or 70. I apologize if I've got those numbers wrong. That's just from memory. But there was some pretty good evidence on the fact that people then switched to the roads, not because they were afraid of the trains, but because the trains then started running really slowly because people were afraid that there would be a similar fault in the tracks. The trains ran really slowly. People switched to cars. Cars are more dangerous than trains. And uh, when you look at the numbers, it was about about another Hatfield. It was about another four or five people probably died and about another 70 people were probably injured you can say that on grounds of probability you you don't know who those people are you don't know whether those numbers are correct certainly no identifiable faces and even the families who if someone was killed in a car crash having decided not to travel by train even their family would not blame that on Hatfield I find it fascinating. I mean, and it's just something I was going to say earlier, actually, when you were, we were talking about having to deal with the, the coronavirus thing and, and how how appalling it is. And, and in a way, as journalists, often, you know, we, we find ourselves saying, having to remember the necessary caveat, you know, that these are individual lives and how traumatic it is, because you, you can end up sounding incredibly callous. Uh, and... I don't know if you've come across this idea of um, emotional decoupling, this idea that there comes a point where you have to be able to separate an analytical view from what your emotional response to that view would be. And some people, I think, are are better at it than others. And we just just introduced the idea of the Hatfield as a unit of death caused by traffic or or transport uh, accident, which is is a horrible currency if you think about it but it was useful for that conversation two minutes ago um and 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 you have to get this balance you know if you're in the business of statistics you know you have to be a high decoupler as it's called someone who is able to just separate out out the the individual uh, tragedy from the the numbers but if an extreme decoupler is is a psychopath i mean it's someone who literally doesn't have an emotional response to these things so I just wondered if, if that's something that, that you, you know, you've found difficult to balance or, or thought about on when you, you know, in the book or on more or less. I think it's a very important idea. I actually hadn't heard the phrase emotional decoupling, but I definitely write about the phenomenon in the book. And I think it's, it's very important. Um, so a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, the man who persuaded me to become an economist, Peter Sinclair, uh, died uh, having been infected with the virus quite early on in the pandemic. So, and my book is dedicated to to teachers in general and and to my teacher, Peter Sinclair, in particular. So I don't have any um, problem, uh, you know, with the emotional response. I know about the emotional response. I know about the emotional cost. Um, But it doesn't, doesn't help us think clearly. And so the first piece of advice, there are 10 rules in the book. And the first rule is to notice your emotional reaction. Um, if you don't notice your emotional reaction, if you don't notice that a particular claim has got you feeling uh, angry or um, vindicated or uh, joyful or uh, defensive and in denial, if you don't notice any of that, then you're not going to think clearly and you're not going to be able to critically evaluate the claim. And I think it's really important to do that, not to 
dismiss your emotion or to suppress your emotion, but at least to notice your emotion. Because if you don't, if you don't, you haven't got a, a hope of thinking clearly. And that somebody, um, it might have been the New Statesman, somebody reviewed more or less, and they said, and I think this was supposed to be a compliment. I definitely take it as a compliment. They said, I think Tim Harford's been chemically enhanced to keep him calm in the face of this just this terrible tragedy. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe she meant that to be a criticism, but um, I took it as a compliment because, you know, I'm trying to help people understand what's going on. They can they can have all the emotional responses they, 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 they want and they can find many other people who will help them to get angry or upset or to express their emotional feelings. But um, I'm trying to help people see clearly and that does mean putting the emotion to one side for a while. One of the things that really, again, struck me reading the book, you, you, you know, it's, it's very easy to think emotional response somehow irrational. Uh, what you would need is some very dispassionate uh, analytical view. Uh, and, and what I like about this idea of noticing the emotional response rather than trying to, to shunt it aside uh, is that you, you have to take on board the, the rational element of an emotional reaction to something. And, and that might sound a bit sort of paradoxical, but the example you give, which I think is very important, is how the cost to someone socially of having a view that contradicts their peer group or their family or their friends is much higher than the actual cost, unless you're, you give the example of the president of China who really ought to have the correct view on climate change. But if you're a kind of a farmer in Montana uh, and you don't believe in climate change or you don't want to believe in climate change, uh, it, it's, it's, it's rational for you to have the same view on that as your peers rather than go through the pain of contradicting them. So it's not as simple as a kind of a rational, irrational response. No, it's not. And the farmer in Montana is a very interesting sort of um, mental picture. Um, I, there's a great little piece of reporting by a journalist called Ari Laveau that I, uh, I repeat in the book where Ari talks to Montana farmers. I think they're in Montana. They're in the Midwest somewhere. And, um, and the sort of when they're with the journalist in their field by themselves without their friends, they will say, this crop is wrecked. And, look, and it's climate change. When they're in the bar, they'll say, oh yeah, these crops are wrecked because of these hot, dry summers or something. And people probably know what they're talking about, but they, you know, climate change has become a thing that the Democrats say. That's no, so, so you don't use the phrase, even though they can all see, they're farmers, they can see what's happening. So it's, it, it, it's interesting. And in general, yes, the, the consequences for you of having... Uh, a view on climate change that is out of step with your friends. Um, the social consequences are much more serious than the environmental consequences. Um, I'm not saying the environmental consequences of climate change don't matter. Of course they matter, but it doesn't make, you know, what I do about climate change, what you do about climate change, it isn't going to make any difference to the climate, but it will make a big difference to whether our friends think we're idiots or not. So the, the social consequences really make a difference. Well, that, and that's an enormous challenge to anyone who is trying to advance a, a proposition that is, is losing in politics. I mean, I, I just briefly bringing it back to the Brexit thing. I mean, it's a mistake that I think a lot of the Remainers made that we've talked about before on this podcast of just sort of waiting for the facts to come and uh, refute a Brexit enough that the scales fall from people's eyes. And no one really found a way to develop a, a strategy to 
as it were, to give people ladders to climb down with their dignity intact from positions that that they had, you know, uh, and 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 that it, in a sense that is the the tactical challenge that you know when you're just asserting that my facts and saying your facts are wrong has failed essentially. Yes, I mean I would say that that's a that's but that's a problem for somebody else. Okay, so that's not my job to convince people to stay in the EU. I've got my own views as to whether that was a good idea. Um, but it's not my job to persuade people. Um, but yes, it, the facts aren't enough. People um, people are led by uh, their cultural identity. They're led by their emotions. Uh, they're led by their pride. Uh, there's a lot going on, especially with something like the um, you know, the European Union, where it's it, it stands for all kinds of sort of culturally uh, significant things, good and bad. Like I say, there's a real sort of icon means a lot of a lot of things in quite a vague way to a lot of people and but actually when you get down to it it's super technical and difficult and no one seems to care about the technical difficult stuff that it's all about the the flag waving whether the flag is blue and has all those gold stars on or whether the flag is the union jack so it's a it's a, it's a tough one at the beginning of the final chapter of the book i do quote orson wells um who who says basically people will understand anything doesn't matter how difficult people will understand anything if they're interested and after the brexit referendum my fellow economists and i got together in a big sort of conference to, to basically say well, where where did we go wrong in as much as the economics profession expressed a view about this and generally the view was brexit is not a very good idea and we were well aware that nobody paid the slightest bit of attention to anything we said. And and I think it speaks well of the profession that economists wanted to get together and say, OK, well, how can we do better next time? Not so that we can win the second referendum or something, but just like we have a body of professional knowledge and we completely failed to convey that professional knowledge. How do we do a better job? And when I spoke at that conference, I said, you've, you've got to get people interested. You've got to get people curious You've got to tell stories that make that awaken a sense of wonder and interest in the world. And the model for communication about science or statistics or economics or anything is not be very, very clear and avoid jargon, although that's always handy. The model is awaken curiosity, get people interested. And that's what Brian Cox and um, Hannah Fry and David Attenborough and all these great science communicators do. It's not about know using short words it's about making people really want to find out more well that really stood out in, in the section on on Florence Nightingale actually I mean and it, I think it is ultimately a paradox I think it's not a good thing or a bad thing but that you you, you do this storytelling is you said just now story that is, is so central to how you draw someone into an understanding of a concept uh, but then I found myself thinking well almost by definition these stories are these exceptional cases they're they are themselves luring us into all these 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 biases. These are the sort of the survivorship bias, for example. This is the extraordinary case that actually is is by very definition unusual, but it's being used to illuminate some some wider principle. And I don't know. I thought it's an interesting paradox. No, I'm a terrible hypocrite. You're right because I'm telling people the very first thing I I do in in the uh, in the once we've got through the introduction, chapter one, is you got to. You've got to step aside from your emotions. You've got to notice your emotions, and you've got to um, you've got to think clearly uh, by you know being calm. 
while I'm telling a story about an old man being ripped off by an art forger who turns out to be a, a grotesque Nazi and yet dies a national hero because he fools the entire nation and it's just the most grotesque injustice and, and, and I hope a really you know engaging and memorable story and and you know, in a chapter, I'm saying, well, you've got to you've got to keep calm and, and not get carried away. So I'm a hypocrite. So fine. I, I recognize that. Um, I think I think that you see you said paradox. OK, fine. Uh, it's paradox. I'm a paradox. But um, actually, the Florence Nightingale story, I think, does get to the heart of that, though, because what I argue for Florence Nightingale did and people will know her as a nurse. Not everyone knows that she was the first female fellow of the Royal Statistical Society and was a great statistician and statistical communicator, as well as a campaigner for public health. Um, what she did was win a very, very important argument about the need for improved hygiene standards in hospitals, in barracks, etc., better law on public health. Um, she won that argument in a slightly sneaky way. She produced an amazing data visualization that's a little bit, you know, it's not dishonest. It's just, it's very clever. It's a bit too clever. Um, but she was right. So I think that that sort of gets to the heart of what I hope I'm trying to do. Uh, like, first, figure out what the truth is. And once you've figured out what the truth is, then you are permitted to try to persuade people and to use stories and emotions and visualizations. So that's what I'm trying to do. I, hopefully, you know, the, the truth comes first and then I'm going to try and find the story to persuade you of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that story about the, the Dutch art forger, I'm still a little bit angry about that. I mean, is it extraordinary, that sort of laundering of reputation? And then I was just thinking that uh, and pondering my own anger. I thought, and, and then you describing earlier how someone had said you were sort of somehow chemically uh, rendered immune from, from, from rage at what's going on in the world. Uh, I, I wonder about anger. I mean, it's... It can make people very, very effective, but it also famously mobilises all the wrong bits of your brain for doing uh, rational, careful thinking. I mean, is there a point where it's important to be angry, you know, when you see a bad state of visualisation that is misleading? Or, or, or is, it, is, that, is it just sort of a junk emotion that, that is just clouding our judgment? Well, I mean, we're getting, we're getting quite deep now, Raphael, aren't we, about sort of what is the... What is the... We like to get deep on this podcast. This is a sorry. I should, did I not warn you about that? What makes you angry, Tim? What makes me angry? Um, uh, apart from things that I'm ashamed of, like, you know, my, my children spilling their their food on the floor and sort of me losing my temper about that. Um, uh, I get angry less than I used to. I have to say it. it is a habit of mind. Once you start trying to very deliberately be calm and not be provoked it starts to work and maybe I should be angry about more things. There are some some really uh, admirable people out there who are simultaneously uh, incredibly incisive in their analysis and yet able to just um, summon up uh, rage and all sorts of other sort of emotional inspiration and, and so on. I find it difficult to do both things at the same time. I do find that sort of slightly detached mode a little bit addictive and... Um, it's an easy place to be once you get used to it. Is that connected to uh, the point we were discussing earlier about about not presuming that the what the news cycle says is important uh, is an accurate measure of, of what's important and actually just only dipping into 
the news when you need to find out what's new as opposed to what the news wants you to think is yeah new. i mean i mean are you have you do you actively sort of disengage yeah i mean i'm not really much of a news junkie which is you know some in some ways a disadvantage for a journalist but um i'm just more interested in other things so i mean my column for the financial times uh in recent months has been very much trying to understand and analyze the virus and our responses to it but more generally it is often oh uh, there's a really interesting piece of social science here that um i'm just looking for some vague some vaguely relevant current affairs excuse to mention and it's really about this idea that i want to get across to people rather than a hot take on the latest thing boris johnson's done so um I, you know i tend to write columns that are um slightly they're slightly odd columns really they're not traditional newspaper columns um there's not a lot of tub thumping it is i think important to to not just be led by whatever it is that everyone is is shouting about that could also be true for fact checking so another thing that um i'm trying to do with more or less it's very easy to get sucked into a cycle of just fact checking i think we've started to realize that one of the things that goes on in politics is the deliberate lie that is designed to attract the attention of the fact checkers and attract designed to attract attention so you think about the classic lie on the bus the 350 million for the nhs it was really important that that was untrue not because oh if they'd told the truth and they'd said 200 million which was probably closer that wouldn't have been enough and people wouldn't have been angry about that sum of money and it had to be 350 million to get people angry that wasn't the thing at all it had to be it had to be whatever it was it had to be wrong because then you could get the fact checkers to spend all their time talking about how much money we send to the EU, which is what happened. Absolutely. This is, this is such an important point, I think, this, this sense that, uh, and, and it's something that I think a lot of sort of uh, liberal-minded people who, who spend their time getting very angry about uh, Brexit or Donald Trump or other things have really not found any kind of response to, which is that if you, if you don't take the bait... Uh, if you don't just allow yourself to get drawn into endless rebuttal of a flagrant lie, um, which is just a device to, to make you talk about the talking points that the candidate wants you to talk about, if you let it go, then the lie stands. If you take the bait, then you've walked into the trap because that, that's all everyone's talking about. And there there's doesn't appear to be a good a sort of tactic to, to, to navigate that. I know, I'd love to know what it is. Yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not so easy. I, sh I should say... This is slightly off topic, but um, speaking of weird things that are, are, seem to be designed to be caught out. So we had this week the uh, we're breaking the law in a very specific and limited way. This is obviously not a statistical claim, but um, that is really interesting because I, I, I logged on to Twitter and everyone was just tweeting like Ronnie and Reggie Cray memes. We, we break the law in a specific and I, I hadn't heard the original comments so i didn't like like what what's been said why is everybody talking about breaking the law in a specific and limited way i was trying to sort of reverse engineer the news story from the memes um but that that's really interesting because um i don't think they are planning to break the law in a specific and limited way i think they're planning to to break a very important law that they they took responsibility for passing just a few months ago that involves the key issue in the uh, negotiation with the eu um so but by saying this absurd thing they've just got everybody repeating specific and limited i mean yeah sure they're laughing at specific and limited but people have sort of accepted 
that yeah, you're amplifying to... it on their terms. And what's yeah, very yeah, interesting, exactly. in, very in, interesting, in, yeah. And uh, it, you know, similarly, the the publication of the legal, the, the the attorney general's legal view of how this is sort of okay, which is is uh, seems to be pretty absurd from the judgment of people who are better constitutional lawyers than me. Um, but that doesn't matter because in terms of the sort of domestic political argument, if people are as long as there is something that a loyal Conservative MP can hold up and say, well, yes, you say yeah, this is a flagrant breach of international law and, and shreds Britain's reputation as a, a member of the sort of treaty-abiding community, but we say, does, behold our legal argument here, then you're back into that question of false equivalence in balance. The people who care enough get bogged down in technical rebuttal the fact that there is a, a proposition and a rebuttal uh, just numbs everyone else who doesn't care enough and it becomes this sort of eye-glazing phenomenon and we're back to he said, she said arguments about Brexit. Yeah. And then in terms of domestic politics, job done. Yeah. And then how do you cut through with actually there, somewhere behind us there's a truth that we've all lost sight of. Absolutely, yeah. So to come back to your question, and I interrupted myself in answering, but well, what does the fact checker do to to deal with with this. Um, I think, first of all, is you don't want to spend too much time repeating the false claim. And this is a mistake that fact checkers used to make a lot. And I think we've all got smarter about it. So let me give you an example of how, to, how not to do it. So not long ago, maybe three or four years, I forget exactly, Nigel Farage claimed that Malmo in Sweden was the rape capital of Europe since they'd taken all these immigrants in. And the BBC website ran an item with the with the headline is Malmo the rape capital of Europe and then if you click on the headline you go to the page the, then there's a huge headline that says is Malmo the rape capital of Europe then below that you get Nigel Farage and a quote from Nigel Farage saying Malmo is the rape capital of Europe that's not the exact quote but that's the basic thing and then underneath that you say you have in bold the claim Nigel Farage says says that Malmo is the rape capital of Europe Okay, right. So where are we now? Oh, you want me to, now I've got to scroll down with a mouse and like, you know, to actually read any analysis of this claim. So you've repeated it four times in bold already before I've got to any discussion of whether it's true. It's not true. Um, I can't remember the details of why it's not true because, you know, the details are so boring and tedious. So we need to avoid that, yeah? Yeah, and what we know from, and you write about it in the book, that the sort of the, the psychological anchoring process that goes on means that even if you are persuaded that maybe Malmo isn't the rape capital of Europe, somewhere in your head you've got a sense it's probably pretty rapey, you know. Otherwise, why would we even be talking about it? So all of everything has been skewed, and and pretty and pretty immigranty as well. Yes. So now we now we're, you know, we're talking about just how many just how many people do immigrants rape. It's not as many as Nigel Farage says, but well, still, you know, we're we're on the topic of how many people get raped by immigrants. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a big risk. So fact checkers are better about this now. So a fact checker now would just say, w would lead with, no, Malmo is not the rape capital of Europe. They wouldn't have the same clickbait. And then you'd very quickly get to the, you know, the, the nub of the claim. But then I think, yeah, sorry, go on. So I just say it pains me that, that there, unfortunately there is uh, an economic incentive still for a lot of my industry at least um, to you use the word clickbait to to engage with that. I mean, the more outrageous claim uh, or the or the provocation sells twice. Uh, once yeah. because the people who frantically agree with it 
share it. And then the people who just as frantically and aggressively disagree with it, share it again, saying, behold, this appalling thing. So you've doubled the, the traction. And I'm so a, a provocation has been sort of five times around the world before the rebuttals even kind of got its boots on. Absolutely. And the provocation gets much more attention. I mean, so I was... Um... I was on the wrong end of this recently uh, when I, I made a mistake in my own journalism. It's very, and I'm embarrassed to talk about it, but I think it's important to talk about it because it's quite instructive. So I wrote a piece for the Financial Times. I was trying to figure out for a friend of mine how much risk was he, uh, was he at of catching a fatal case of COVID. He's 62, lives in London. Um, and I did all the maths and it turns out at the time, August, probably about one in two million every day of catching it and then of dying from it one in two million uh for a 62 year old white guy um and i wrote this piece and then towards the end of the piece i was like oh what other things are about a one in two million chance so i went and found a couple of articles about that horse riding motorbike uh riding skiing it's all about a one in two million chance or taking a bath uh was another thing that was on this list and i didn't check them well enough. I went to a, what I regard as a reputable source, but I didn't check well enough because I'd done all the homework on the coronavirus. Okay, then the FT put the bath thing in the headline. Our coronavirus is as risky as taking a bath. Then the Sun and the Mirror reported it. So the Sun said, expert says coronavirus is risky as taking a bath. The Mirror then says, oh, Tim Harford gave an interview to the Sun. I never did, but okay, <laughs> fine, whatever. Um, and then the Daily Mail phone, they wanted me to write a piece. Um, and finally, when I realised that this was at risk of going into a headline on the Daily Mail, as well as the Sun, as well as the Mirror, I thought, something doesn't seem quite right about that, to be honest. Now you see it in really big letters. So I went back and I checked and I, and I was wrong. And actually, the, my original source was wrong, but that's not really his fault. He was just writing something about how dangerous are sharks, I think. Um, and it turns out the correct uh, figure is uh, you've got a one in three million chance of dying in the bath per year not not per bath it's a pretty big difference so and i've you know i've published a correction in the ft i published an explanation on twitter or i've apologized but i think it's very um and I, you know, I feel really bad about it because people have got the wrong information and it's my fault but you have to understand that the that is the probably the most famous thing i've ever said and it's the most famous thing i've ever said because it's the most interesting thing i've ever said and it's the most interesting thing i've ever said because it's not true um, and it's not interesting because it's false. It's just like false things are more surprising than true things usually because we usually know the true things already. You make this point in the book. I can't remember if it's a standalone rule or a subset of, of one of your bigger rules, but that when something sounds outlandish and remarkable really catches your eye because it seems unlikely, that in itself is a flashing warning light. Yes, I talk about it, it's a subset of, of one of the rules. So the, the, the rule is to, to understand the process by which this, inf this piece of information got in front of you. Like what is the, the big funnel of all the, all the claims that ever get made, all the scientific research that ever gets done, all the, you know, the, the possible facts that could be drawn to your attention on social media uh, that the headline writers are going to put on the front page rather than on page 12, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are all kinds of filters going on there some deliberate and some more accidental. But generally, something that's really surprising is very much more likely to, to go viral, to catch your attention, to be put in a headline. And one of the reasons that things can be surprising is because they're not true. Not the only reason, 
Um, but that is one reason. You also go into the need to ask, what is the process by which disinformation got to me? Which is a very important cultural and economic mechanism to understand. But I also hear in that another warning alarm ringing, because you could configure that same question in, in the most conspiratorial terms, you know, uh, who wants me to think this thing becomes who is pulling the puppet strings, leading me to believe what they want me to believe. Uh, I suppose I'm trying to get at this fine line between scepticism uh, and an all-consuming cynicism that says I can't believe anything uh, except what I find in my safe information silo or what I get from my WhatsApp group, which... I think, as we've discussed, gives me the information I want to hear. Yes, it, there is a, it is a fine line. Absolutely. So I begin the book by telling the story of probably the most popular book about statistics ever written, which was is called How to Lie with Statistics um, by a guy called Daryl Huff. And it's a great book. It's all about how statistics can be used to trick you. Um, Daryl Huff's next uh, sort of next act was to work on a sequel called How to Lie with Smoking Statistics that basically attacked all the epidemiological work that was being done to link cigarettes with lung cancer, uh, paid for by Big Tobacco, and he ended up testifying in Congress um, using one of his cute little stories from How to Lie with Statistics about how, you know, you can statistically prove that storks bring babies and because um, there is a correlation. And... Um, and basically saying, Andy, it's kind of it's the same with cigarettes and lung cancer, probably just a spurious correlation. So you see that this very short journey from a kind of a witty, sparky scepticism about crappy uh, statistical claims to this really profound uh, cynicism where you are actively smearing high quality scientific work um, because it's politically or financially convenient to do so. Uh, and yeah, you know, I want people to be to have a healthy skepticism, but not be cynical. I think that's that's good advice. But what is where does a healthy skepticism cross over to cynicism? It's very hard to say. Oh, I could talk about this stuff forever, but sadly we're really short of time. I do want to squeeze in one last question, uh, which is related to this issue of trust and skepticism, cynicism. Um, towards the end of the book, you open this whole new Pandora's box uh, on on trust in terms of how much confidence we can have in information and political choices sometimes that are driven not by people uh, but by machines uh, and again it seems to me there is this line isn't there between having a sensible healthy wariness of of new technology that a lot of us me certainly I, we simply can't wrap our heads around it but without lurching into a, a kind of moral panic about AI eating all our free will and spooky algorithms subjugating humanity and turning us all into slaves in some techno Planet of the Apes reboot. <laughs> so, yeah, OK, well, uh, let me keep it brief then. I mean, in, in a nutshell, some algorithms are, uh, are really amazing and some algorithms are terrible. And we... Um, we seem to just lump them all into the same category. And some people are just instinctively very distrustful of them. And some people, uh, including uh, the entire Department of Education, it seems, um, just seem to think they're wonderful and infallible and can work complete miracles. Uh, and so what, what I'm arguing is we need more, um, more intelligent transparency. Uh, these algorithms need to be uh, testable 
Um, you need to be running randomized trials to see whether they do what they're supposed to do. Um, this should be evaluatable by independent experts. And for ordinary citizens, it should just be clear what the algorithm is doing and, and why it's doing it. Um, and if we had that sort of, I mean, I mean, and there is a word for, for this sort of thing. It's called science. In the book, I, I talk about the history of alchemy and the history of science and the fact that alchemy and chemistry overlapped. Is that sometimes the same people with the same basic methods uh, completely failing to progress with alchemy and making amazing progress in chemistry and physics, people like Isaac Newton and Robert Hooke. And the difference, I argue, is that um, scientific claims were were publicly accessible. You had to publish them. They could be repeatable. People could evaluate them, criticize them, build on them. Uh, and alchemy was all done in secret. And at the moment, a lot of the algorithmic work we're doing is more like alchemy. Uh, it's being done in secret, big claims being made. Everything's commercially confidential and you're not allowed to see how the algorithm works. And that's just a recipe for uh, for disaster. So yeah, more more science, less alchemy is my basic prescription for algorithms. Pretty good recommendation more generally, uh, on which note we should probably let you go back uh, to work. And I need to say thank you very much for agreeing to be on our podcast. Um, and, it's my pleasure. It's been great to join you. Uh, and in, again, in the interest of, of pure transparency, we should make it clear that um, I spilt an entire cup of coffee all, all over the notes I had while we were having this conversation. Uh, and also at one point, my microphone stopped working during the recording. Um, so uh, for your patience with that as well, um, thank you very much. Uh, and How to Make the World Add Up, that's the title of the book, am I right? That is indeed. Is available imminently. You can order it now. You won't get it yet, but you can definitely order it. You can buy it. 17th of September, publication date. As, as good as now. So thank you very much. We, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I wasn't joking about enjoying the book. I really do recommend it. Um, uh, and in a slightly pathetic way, because I listened to more or less, I'm a little bit starstruck because it's a great program. Uh, so thanks again, uh, Tim Hoffert, for coming on the program. And thanks for listening. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to previous episodes. Uh, there have been quite a lot of you over the summer. Um, uh, I should also encourage you, and in fact, I am encouraging you now, if you do like it, to share it, tell other people, um, because the more people listen, the more we're motivated to keep doing it and uh, the more guests we can have and the more we can record. So um, leave a review uh, on the Apple site i think that's a good thing to do as well um and if you've got questions or comments nice comments that is we only want nice comments frankly or constructive criticism maybe at, at best uh yeah, in the direction of not nice comments uh, uh email us at potc at larchmontfilms.com uh, we'll put a link to that on, on the sort of show notes as well um and Thanks, Phil, for editing this and arranging all the sound and clearing up my sound messes, not my coffee spills, just the sound spills. Uh, and hopefully we'll be back with another episode very soon. <laughs>